I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. We are in downtown Washington, D.C., about two blocks from the White House. These people are now saying, go to CVS. If you hear those cracks behind me, the police are shooting. We're here in downtown DC across from the White House. Protesters are being dispersed from Lafayette Park and the police are shooting. Rubber bullets, I believe. There was tear gas, there's been flashbangs. I'm gonna get out of this area. I heard multiple shots that I believe were rubber bullets coming from law enforcement. That was Yahoo News correspondent Hunter Walker covering protests in front of the White House this weekend as the demonstrations over the horrific death of George Floyd spread and escalated throughout the country. As Walker discovered, those protests started out as largely peaceful and then started taking a darker turn with agitators confronting police and looters barging into an upscale shopping mall, a historic church, and other facilities in Washington, leaving a trail of destruction that has spooked the nation's capital. We'll talk to Walker about what he saw and recorded during the D.C. protests, and we'll talk to historian Rick Perlstein, the author of the classic book Nixonland, about the parallels between what we're experiencing now and the events of 1968 on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So it is a really scary time to be watching the news in America right now. These demonstrations and protests over the weekend became increasingly violent, increasingly uh, destructive. And it's the kind of thing that one fears could get even worse. And of course... Thanks to our uh, ever calming and soothing president, the risk gets even greater. He was talking just today to a group of governors telling them that they got to be tougher. They got to be more aggressive. Quote, you have to dominate or you look like a bunch of jerks. You have to arrest and try people. You know, throughout recent American history, and I think most of American history, frankly, moments of national tragedy and crisis like this were moments when presidents would come forward and heal the country, uh, be soothing, try to unite people, and show that kind of very American um, leadership in these kinds of situations. Donald Trump does the opposite. And, you know, you think about Obama when Dylan Roof massacred people in the church in South Carolina, singing Amazing Grace. You think about Bill Clinton during Oklahoma City bombing. You, know, you think about Ronald Reagan during the you know the Challenger uh, disaster, 
And what does Donald Trump do? He berates the governors around the country for being weak and being fools and tells them, essentially orders them to take back their streets. He wants them to be like him. Yeah. That's what it's about. And he wants the images of the police and the National Guard getting tough and rounding up largely minority protesters and yes looters there's no question that you know this is going to become complicated because as as we'll see in our discussion with uh, Hunter Walker there is a lot of mayhem going on and it is sad because the protests were so heartfelt about what people saw in Minneapolis and it goes with the territory you know there are so often um, in situations like this, which descend into chaos sometimes, there are people who exploit it, who take advantage of it uh, for their own purposes. Some of the looting, which you know you can't condone, but some of it is political in a sense. It is about expressing rage and deep frustration. Some of it is just probably about yeah, well, stealing. T- t- tell that to the to the shopkeepers who get looted and, and uh, have their yeah. property destroyed and their yeah. businesses disrupted. Well, that is true, although I have to say, I think reflecting the depth of pain in this country about some of these issues, this is a first, uh, first time, as far as I can recall, where restaurant owners and other store owners, uh, mom and pop shops whose stores have been looted, have expressed solidarity with protesters and said, we will rebuild. So it's complicated. And um, people are going to exploit this to advance their own uh, political agendas uh, cynically. But it is something that, um, you know, we just have to deal with. And and as we will uh, discuss with Rick Perlstein, the historian, it's something we've been through before and in, you know, in very similar ways. And the uh, attempts to exploit it for political purposes, we've been through that before as well. And I think, yeah, and I do think that moments like this turning to history can be very, very helpful, provide uh, context along the lines of what you just said, which is we have been here before and we have emerged from it before. I mean, the problem is that that history also repeats itself, and we've been seeing this this uh, terrible issue with black men being hunted down, innocent black men being hunted down um, so many times, and we have to find ways to get beyond that and actually make progress. Well, let's start out with the news uh, with our eyewitness to the demonstrations in Washington, Hunter Walker. Let's bring him in. We now have our intrepid reporter, Hunter Walker, straight from three straight nights of covering the disturbances in D.C. Hunter, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, guys. So quite a few harrowing nights in the nation's capital, as it has been for a lot of cities around the country. But you have been there in front of the White House covering those demonstrations in Lafayette Square, watching as they have migrated elsewhere throughout the city. Give us your take of what you've seen over the last few days. Well, you know, I I don't think it is remotely inaccurate or overstating things to say this is nothing short of an 
extraordinary moment in American history. Obviously, there are protests going on all around the country, but it's particularly jarring to see what's happening in Washington, D.C., where you have these scenes that are tantamount to a war zone essentially playing out on the president's doorstep. Uh, It really began Friday night into the wee hours of Saturday morning, where you had these large groups of protesters, you know, nominally there among the, you know, wellspring of outrage following the death of George Floyd on May 25th. And they had this hours-long standoff with uniformed Secret Service. And actually, they managed to breach one of the outer barricades, these sort of bike fences along Pennsylvania Avenue between the White House and Lafayette Park. The protesters, you know, stayed there for hours in standoffs. The Secret Service was eventually reinforced by U.S. Park Police. But essentially, prior to the park being cleared, you had what I can only describe as street fighting on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House for hours on on Friday night into Saturday morning. When you say street fighting, what are we talking about? Well, in in one instance, and I've I've been live streaming really throughout, you can see some of these videos in our stories and also um, up on my Twitter feed. But in one particularly wild instance, basically the Secret Service and then again later the Park Police were using plastic riot shields. And they were basically holding the line, replacing about 90 feet of barricades that had been pulled down with these riot shields. The protesters were full on punching at the shields, trying to punch over the shields and get to the Secret Service. There were exchanges of plastic bottles from the protesters, fireworks that they were throwing over at the Secret Service. At points, there was tear gas and mace used by the Secret Service. But but one moment that, that just really shocked me to my core. The protesters, I I don't really know how it happened, seemed to manage to pull two Secret Service agents off the line. And they ended up about 10 or 20 feet into the park. And you had these two Secret Service agents literally throwing punches with their shields up with protesters before getting back to the line. Hunter, let me let's uh, back up a little bit because these individual scenes that you witnessed are fascinating, important, troubling, and we should get into them. But I think it's important to provide some context for our listeners here. Many of these protests have begun peacefully and then as they evolve and as nightfall starts, they have tended to become more violent, and that's when there has been looting. So I would actually like you to kind of break down what you have seen in terms of the bigger picture, the psychology of the crowd, your sense as to who is actually instigating the violence versus who are the more peaceful protesters. This is all confusing to people, particularly at a time when so much of this is consumed on social media, kind of bit by bit without context. Really important to kind of try to provide that overview and that context here. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Dan. These are really, really important questions. Um, You know, obviously, this is a very charged and I think, as I've said already, a very historical moment. And One thing that I'm noticing is as we're digesting it on social media, there's a lot of disinformation out there and people sort of trying to twist it for partisan ends. And that has just amplified the fact that uh, the crucial question here is one you're getting to, who is doing what and why? You know, who are these protesters and and, and what have they been up to? I should say Friday, uh, Friday night, which was the beginning of this, was a little bit of a different experience for me because I was actually the White House press pooler on Friday. So up until 6 p.m., I was actually with President Trump I spoke to him just before the day ended and asked him about the protest 
that at that point uh, had largely been in Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was killed. And I asked him if he thought the protesters were good people and if he had any sympathy for them. And he said, yes, but you know, at this point there had already been some violence in Minneapolis. He said he knew a lot of the protesters were acting out of sorrow, but this uh, looting and violence was totally unacceptable. And he described it as a disservice to both their city, their state, and the country. So I was with the president. I then actually went home and I started to hear these rumors of an unfolding situation at the White House. So I, I want to get that context there, both because I, I don't think a lot of people caught the president's remarks to me on Friday evening, but also because I didn't see the protest evolve during the day on Friday, which is a contrast to my experience later in the weekend. By the time I got there, you had this group that was just sort of in this standoff with the Secret Service, banging on the shields, throwing things. At some point, they actually managed to take the shields from the Secret Service. They broke some of them. In my conversations with these people, they did all seem to be sort of people who were focused on the outrage over Floyd's death and the larger Black Lives Matter movement. You know, one thing I asked people, it obviously was a situation that pretty early on looked to have potential for a violent end. And in addition to sort of the normal safety concerns we see at protests, obviously the coronavirus pandemic hasn't gone anywhere and there's, there's no social distancing in these hectic and angry crowds. I asked people, you know, were they worried? And many of them, frankly, told me, yes, they were, uh, but they thought it was important to be there. What's interesting is, you know, when we talk about Black Lives Matter protesters, I think, you know, people probably assume by its name that this is a largely African-American thing. This was a pretty diverse crowd. There were women, there were men initially, uh, people of all ages, black, white, other races. Towards the end of the night, it thinned out, and I would say it was more focused on the young men. But certainly that initial evening, Friday night into Saturday morning, it was very much what I would characterize as sort of a political and angry Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah. And I have to say, Hunter, I watched uh, this morning the press conference that uh, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and the police chief Pete Newsham gave, and they seemed to me to be quite rattled. There were uh, 88 arrests last night half of them for felony rioting, according to the police chief. He said that uh, the demonstrations appeared to be organized in nature. Bowser talked about going into St. John's Church, that historic church across Lafayette Park from the White House, where presidents have traditionally gone to pray for years. Uh, A nursery was looted and vandalized inside the church. Uh, Graffiti uh, on the AFL-CIO building next door. And then, of course, the demonstrators moved uptown northwest to uh, Maza Gallery, uh, a upscale shopping mall about 10 minutes from my home. They broke in there. They vandalized the CVS across the street. I mean, it was clear to me, just listening to the descriptions of what was happening, that this had gone well beyond people trying to peacefully protest the horrible thing that happened to George Floyd. And these were people who were intent on fomenting looting and destruction. Well, I I think you're absolutely right, you know, A, about the extent of the violence here and and B, that it's gone well beyond that initial cause. You know, one thing that I would say that I'd I'd like to be very specific here, just due to the nature of, of what happened and also due to this polarized climate we're in, 
Each of the three nights of protests that we've seen so far here in D.C. had a very distinct flavor and different participants. And that included on the law enforcement side. So, you know, Friday was, as I said, sort of largely about this George Floyd situation. It was it was a standoff with Secret Service and later Park Police in front of the White House. And, you know, again, just to see that kind of lawlessness fighting on Pennsylvania Avenue uh, feet away from where the president was is is stunning, given how secure that area is supposed to be. By Saturday, you know, one thing you've you've had happen in D.C., and this has been true of each day of this, is there's sort of larger peaceful marches, largely peaceful marches happening in the city during the day. And as Dan was saying, you know, at night, it takes uh, quite literally a dark turn on Saturday. Lafayette Park was fully barricaded. So at at 3.22 Saturday morning, the situation that began on Friday was broken up with pepper spray. They advanced through the crowd, dispersed them from the park. The law enforcement then held that park and set up a barricade right across the street from from St. John's Church. I believe that's H Street, if I'm wrong. Um, So the park was then shut down. And the force that did that uh, included on Saturday night Secret Service and National Guard, who were then again holding this now advanced barricade line with riot shields. What I saw on Saturday is once the protesters had been pushed out of that park and sort of couldn't get to the White House, that's when you began to see uh, a lot more vandalism. And Saturday, you know, you, you were seeing graffiti get put up all over the downtown area. You were seeing fires lit. I saw small and large fires, you know, ranging from garbage cans to an SUV that had burnt out. Burnt out. There was a large fire in the Ronald Reagan building. And I, and I think to your point, Mike, there, there very clearly was an organized nature to some of this. Near that Ronald Reagan building and near St. John's Church, I saw protesters who seemed to be have, have brought equipment, including fireworks, helmets, and gas masks. They were deploying the fireworks, throwing them at law enforcement in a coordinated manner, um, and they were also sort of targeting individual buildings to break with rocks. Uh, so that was that was a, a very tense scene. Saturday was really the time when this began to spread beyond Lafayette Park and really start to focus on vandalism and looting. Then last night, Sunday night into this morning, you had a, a vastly expanded law enforcement presence. I saw uh, FBI actually in, in full-on military tactical gear with helmets, camo, and assault rifles. DEA agents patrolling the streets of downtown Washington. Reportedly, U.S. Marshals also helped reinforce the police, National Guard, Secret Service, and Park Police who'd been there the whole time. And what was interesting was the protesters were actually now allowed further into Lafayette Park, right? But they were ultimately, there was a curfew uh, last night for the first time, 11 p.m. And as the curfew approached, the um, law enforcement, it was hard to tell. I did see National Guard there, but it was hard to tell who else was there just because we were far back from the barricades. I should point out just very quickly that the uh, police chief did say this morning that he was going to accept the National Guard's invitation to come in tonight. And tonight, the mayor has announced a 7 p.m. curfew really early. So four uh, hours earlier, right? Yeah. Because it was 11 p.m. Ele- yeah. 11, but moving it to 7 o'clock, it will still be light out. And um, this strikes me as a, a, you know clearly an escalation and a pretty scary scenario for what could be happening in Washington, D.C. this evening. 
Yeah. And, you know, I I think broadly the protesters, uh, by the time it got to Saturday and Sunday, fit into three groups. There there was that first group I talked about who was there initially on Friday, sort of largely political protesters kind of angry about uh, Black Lives Matter and the situation with George Floyd and just these these killings that we keep seeing of unarmed, uh, unarmed people of color at the hands of the police. By the weekend, they had been joined by a group that I I have seen at a lot of different protests, the Black Bloc. And these are people who typically have an anarchist ideology. They do prepare, they bring equipment to these protests, such as fireworks, rocks, sometimes bags of excrement. What are they called? The Black Bloc. Yeah. And and really, they, you know, they are anarchists and they will attach themselves to a protest of any cause and really just try to escalate the thing. So you, you really saw their emergence in the States with the uh, WTO protests. And what's interesting is the president keeps talking about Antifa. <clears throat> Excuse me, I did get tear gas last night, so I'm coughing a bit. The president does like to talk about Antifa. You know, there is no organized group called Antifa with, with any kind of leader or anything like that. But I have, you know, it's not a total myth. I mean, notably, when I covered a, a protest at a Trump rally in 2017 in Phoenix, there were sort of semi-uniformed Antifa people with their flags. They typically favor black and red. You'll see red armbands or this this famous black and red red flag they use. That actually does exist sometimes. But I did not see any, you know, self-identified Antifa presence in D.C. What I did see was this black block, and I do think that that gets conflated sometimes. So you had the anarchists, you had the George Floyd protesters, and then you had a third and distinct group from that, and that's what I think you were alluding to, Mike, who were people who were really apolitical and just out to loot last night. And and I'll tell you, one of the scariest parts of the evening for me, after covering all the chaos downtown, rubber bullets, tear gas, flashbangs, the whole nine yards, I then had to walk home into my neighborhood. I'm not going to say where it is, but you know, it, it took me sort of through much of residential D.C., and there were people just roving around, you know, looking for trouble very clearly, including coming out of cars, looting Laker stores. I, I was very near to some looting. The 7-Eleven, somewhat close to my neighborhood, was, was totally gone through. Um, as you were saying, they made it to Maza Gallery, which is very upscale all the way on the Maryland border. I've also got reports from friends that over on Georgia Avenue by Howard University, there was damage and vandalism. So, you know, there were there was these three groups, all with distinct aims, and they're kind of all converging to a situation where now we're coming up to this extraordinary 7 p.m. curfew tonight, and if this continues to escalate as it has over the past three days, we're looking at a situation where a really wide swath of D.C. could become very dangerous. Tonight. Hunter, I want to ask you about two episodes over the, those last those three days. One, just picking up on what you were just saying about some of the looting that you witnessed. Uh, I was, of course, watching you last night live on Periscope and, you know, just, you know, riveting narration of what was going on. And at one point, I believe you kind of barricaded yourself into an alley. You were watching the looting of a liquor store and uh, some of the looters were looking at you kind of fixing on where you were. So tell us about what that was like and what you saw. Right. So, you know, as we talk about these protests expanding through D.C., let me get let me give people a little bit of a better sense of it. As we were saying, Friday, it was largely focused on Lafayette Park right across from the White House. By Saturday, it sort of expanded through the downtown a bit more. And it was kind of an active scene of vandalism and clashes with police all the way up to Farragut Park and sort of the Farragut area 
which is still, you know, fairly close, a couple blocks from the White House. What you saw Sunday night into Monday morning, protesters ranged up to I Street in D.C., which is, you know, again, a little further north, pushing towards residential areas from the downtown. Uh, But it is largely a business district. They were going down through the streets looting. These FBI agents and their tactical gear, I thought it was National Guard at at first, and the police managed to disperse those crowds. And I sort of, especially following the rules of the prior evenings, thought things were over and I was preparing to walk home. Um, And so I went a little further away from the downtown. And and one thing that's, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, you have these moments of lawlessness. You have the police operating in these heavily armed groups, but kind of when they roll away from an area, you know, if they're not focused on it, if they're not actively putting out a fire, if you will, and sometimes literally, there is no police presence. And so I was going up this one block and all of a sudden these guys started running out of cars that they pulled up from in the street and smashing windows. And as one of them went past, he kind of turned towards me and I could see he was sort of sizing me up. I, I you know, it, one thing about covering these kind of lootings, which I've never done before, you want to get the footage so that people can see what's happening. But you're also very aware that you're filming violent, aggressive people in the midst of an illegal act. And obviously they can get very angry at you um, if you're doing that. So I saw this guy sort of start to move towards me and I ran into an alleyway. And actually, because I figured, you know, they would just think that I was obviously going to keep running through the alleyway, I, I found kind of a, a cubby hole off to the side and hid. And it was it was incredibly eerie. I could hear them come into the alley looking for me. At that point, I realized the end of it was actually fenced in. And I just stayed still. I, I was kind of putting out live on Twitter where I was, if, if anything, so people would know in case something happened to me. They kind of quickly lost interest in me. I heard them talking about lighting fires and breaking glass. And then they went back up the block when ultimately I decided since it was fenced in, my only move was to make a break for it at one point. They'd now moved on, on to a store up the block. And it was incredible because... As soon as I came out of the alleyway, at that point, there was no danger. They completely fixated on something else. And literally, security guards were standing across the street just watching them break through this liquor store, which I then you know, started to do as well before making my way home. But it was just an indication, you know, when the looters are fixating on either a physical target or a person, there's intense immediate danger they then completely move on and and they all there seemed to it was so lawless in DC last night that you know once they moved on from focusing on me they had no concern about several of us that were just standing mm-hmm. across one more uh, quick episode that I want to ask you about I believe this was Friday night and it was pretty poignant you witnessed sort of uh, very interesting and kind of human interactions between protesters and some of the law enforcement officers. I believe in this case, it was Secret Service officers. And uh, there's an interaction between a a protester named Eddie, and then you have a conversation with uh, uh, an African-American Secret Service officer. Tell us about some of those interactions and also specifically what it must be like to be both black and a law enforcement officer in the middle of these kinds of protests, as far as you could tell from the from the conversations that you had and witnessed? Well, you know, there's two things that I'm really focusing on doing in, in my work out there right now. One is, as much as I can, barring incidents like the one I described before, just raw live streaming to really give people a sense of everything as I am seeing it so they can judge for themselves. 
And then another thing I'm trying to do is also to talk to all the various participants in this, because uh, certainly I don't want to just bring home these jarring images to people. I also want them to understand who is involved and why and what their feelings are. So I've been having conversations with all of the protesters that I can, and also with the law enforcement. Law enforcement largely has been silent. And and to to your question, Dan, about the racial dynamics here, I mean, you know, I I am a, a white person myself. I am obviously not law enforcement, but I have heard a lot of discussions from protesters of color and law enforcement. And they're usually pretty one sided where you'll have protesters sort of shouting at the law enforcement, you know, why are you on that side? Referring to President Trump, who the the protesters have kind of widely painted as racist. uh, Why are you defending him? And really the question I keep seeing get hurled at all the various law enforcement officers of different agencies is particularly the protesters will focus on police of color and say to them, why are you defending Trump? Why are you defending this? Typically that is met with silence. In one case, protesters claimed, and I didn't witness it myself, that an officer was sort of mocking them and saying all lives matter, which obviously is quite inflammatory to say at a Black Lives Matter protest. But in one case, I actually asked a question to a uniformed Secret Service agent, uh, the, the same ones that I usually ask them, which is, you know, do you think this can be de-escalated? And he turned to me and he said, well, how do you de-escalate after killing somebody? There's no coming back from that seemingly referencing George Floyd, uh, and the protesters heard him say this to me, and one of them said to him, now you're talking. Uh, They were really happy to hear him say that. And they said, you know, something along the lines of, why don't you come over here? And he said his his comment, and it will really stick with me, in addition to saying, how do you de-escalate from a killing? This uniformed Secret Service agent in riot gear, standing in front of the White House against this line of protesters, gestured towards his uniform and said, if I take this off, I'm still black. So obviously, everyone on all sides here is having some pretty complex feelings uh, as we see these protests raging in the nation's capital. Hunter, in addition to being our uh, riot reporter, you're also our chief White House correspondent. And uh, from all reports, there's uh, quite a debate going on inside the White House now as to whether President Trump should give an Oval Office address uh, to respond to what's happening and try to ease tensions. What's your best information about where that stands and whether a Trump speech would have any impact at all at this stage? Well, let's keep in mind uh, one overarching reality here, which is that it is an election year. And President Trump, who quite literally began running for re-election on his first day in office, which was a totally extraordinary step at the time, always has campaign on the brain. And, you know, I just did a story um, on his campaign operations and how they've tried to go virtual in this pandemic. And, you know, they are they are very, very focused on the numbers. I know Trump allies who actually believed prior to all these instances that young black and Latino men were a demographic that they could either bring to themselves or at the very least turn off from Joe Biden. So obviously, he's probably pretty alarmed to to see this on the political front. But then, of course, in a concrete way, you know, when I say that Friday night, the barricades at the White House had been breached, I mean, 
you know, I, I don't want us to, do, to a couple of days later lose sight of how extraordinary that is, that there would be a large scale breach at the White House. It was, in fact, so extraordinary that the president was reportedly brought down uh, into a secure bunker at the White House as those protests were raging. In spite of that, um, I, I have heard that he was watching the protest. He was sort of transfixed. You could hear them from inside the White House. And, and he's very alarmed by this, I think, both when it comes to his political future and his personal physical safety. So, you know, they're mulling what to do about this. It, it's been really interesting. As I said, I was there with him on Friday. And what you saw on Friday was, you know, these protests had raged in Minneapolis the night before. The president had, prior to that, announced an intention to make this announcement on China uh, where he pulled out of the World Health Organization and made these these tough sanctions on Hong Kong. And that had been pre-planned. But because it was a press conference and this huge thing had just unfolded in Minneapolis, the whole country and certainly all the reporters there was kind of expecting him to say something. And instead, he spoke about China and he took literally no questions. It was an event later in the day where he, he spoke to myself and the other reporters and finally talked about George Floyd. And it was quite interesting because he did make those sort of nuanced emotional comments that you might expect to see in the Novoa office address from even a more traditional president than Trump. But because they'd been pushed to the afternoon, because everyone had loudly heard him not take questions, I don't think people took notice of that. And when there wasn't this response to his very unusually for President Trump nuanced and emotional message, even uh, to me expressions of sympathy for, you know, liberal protesters. It was, it was really quite extraordinary. Uh, when there was no response to that, over the weekend, you saw him change his tune and shift to tweets where he, you know, at one point, just all caps said the words law and order. Um, and he was advocating, you know, he was retweeting messages calling for law enforcement to take a more aggressive physical response, praising the Secret Service and their vicious dogs and the National Guard. Uh, so you haven't seen him move away from that. You know, mm-hmm. President Trump's allies often say he's a counterpuncher. And I think this is a situation where he's on the defensive. And even if he's got some people who think he should be in the Oval Office taking a conciliatory tone, his inclination in moments when he's backed up against the wall is always to punch. And I just don't know that we're going to see an easing of tension. Right. And to use it for for political purposes. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the tweet this morning. Sleepy Joe Biden's people are so radical left that they're working to get the anarchists out of jail and probably more. Joe doesn't know anything about it. He is clueless. But they will be the real power, not Joe. They will be calling the shots. So, you know, rather than seeking to ease tensions, he's seeking to try to get some political mileage out of this. Not a surprise for our president. Um, Hunter, I want to thank you for your excellent reporting on this, uh, your insights uh, into what's going on. We still clearly have a lot to learn about how these demonstrations uh, have taken place, how they turned violent. Was there a role of outside agitators? Uh, That's all going to be questions uh, we're all going to be trying to follow as closely as we can over the next few days. Um, so, um, Hunter, go back out there, and uh, we'll be back to you. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I just want to restate what Mike said very quickly. It is so important to have reporters like you on the ground and reporting it straight, what you see, what you can verify, providing the kind of context you just provided. And above all, stay safe out there, Hunter. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. It's no secret that our world— 
has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us Rick Perlstein, uh, one of America's most prolific and insightful historians. Uh, Rick, welcome to Skullduggery. Hi, Mike. It's great to be here. So I think we first thought, or I first thought of having you on on Friday when we um, were taping our pod and uh, the idea that we were about to be reliving 1968 first came up and then I immediately thought of your excellent book, Nixonland, about the events of 1968. Now, since then, I'm going to throw something out to you. I've seen on Twitter a little expansion on that of what a crazy year this has been. It started off like 1974 with impeachment. We then veered to 1918 with the Spanish flu. We're now in 1968 with the um, riots and protests in cities across the country. What's next? 1861 or or someplace else? Well, I, I like to say history is in parallels. It's process, right? You can't have another 68 because we already had 1968, you know, and, and um, so that's taken on board and the world changes. A lot is very different in the world since 1968. One, th- one thing that comes to mind, I can just proliferate examples, you know, mm-hmm. forever, is media coverage is very different. Reading what the media would say, what editorialists would say about what was happening in the streets after Martin Luther King died, the Chicago Tribune, where I live, wrote an op-ed all but suggesting that, you know, Martin Luther King had it coming because after all, he was the guy who said you could choose what laws you could follow. And then, you know, it just went on in this extended rant in this editorial about how, well, of course, there are riots in the streets. They keep on, you know, giving things away from the federal treasury to all these people. And next thing you know, they're, you know, basically going to demand the world. And here we are. You see nothing like that today. I mean, for example, the Philadelphia Inquirer, you know, had a very sympathetic editorial. Even Fox News on their Sunday morning show was, you know, quite critical of the police in Philadelphia. So and I've been listening to I've been getting a lot of my news from NPR and the the extent of kind of empathy and contextualization and compassion for what folks are facing in cities all over the country is, you know, nothing like you would have seen. And and Rick, is are you saying that? Uh, make the media point. Are you saying that because the video of what happened to George Floyd rockets around social media? I don't know, but you know, lots of ugly things appeared on TV too. You know, in the '60s. You know, the thing about '60s riots and what's going on now that uh, actually quite similar is quite tragic, which is what, you know, the commission that was convened to study the violence in 1968 during the Democratic National Convention concluded was a police riot. You know, I mean, we're seeing video not only of, you know, the original 
police outrage of, you know, the basically murder or officer involved death, as they call it now, but also of, you know, um, people on their front porches getting shot by tear gas canisters, you know, because they refuse to go inside. We're seeing, you know, police cars, you know, barrel into people, you know, hit people with their car doors. And this same thing, you know, happened, you know, all the time in 19, in the 1960s. The guy who was the police chief in Los Angeles, a guy named William Parker, used to recruit his police officers from the Mississippi Delta. And that was intentional because he was a racist and he wanted to basically be an occupying army. And uh, that same guy, when they did the study on Watts about why it happened, said, well, yeah, one one monkey you know, through a rock and the rest of them just joined in, right? The oh. police are very similar, except for in the, the 1960s, they were shooting people. In, in Newark, in the riots in 1967, uh, after the riot was contained, basically the state police started shooting people. They shot about a dozen, and there were no indictments. The, the report said no cause for indictment. And a lot of what we're happening, seeing what happening, with, like, for example, with the, the CNN reporter getting arrested, or um, the folks getting shot on their porch with tear gas canisters is, you know, after the riots are contained, you know, this kind of show of dominance behavior. Rick, I just want to sort of break in here on this point, because I, you know, I wonder if this is a case where people see what they want to see and tune out that which is inconvenient to them, because we just had before you came on, Rick, uh, a, a long chat with our reporter, Hunter Walker, who's been covering what's been going on in Washington, D.C. over the last few nights. And last night, it got really ugly. And you had destruction at uh, St. John's Church, a nursery at St. John's Church. You had uh, looters breaking into shopping malls, smashing windows, all sorts of vandalism all across the city. 88 people arrested, most for felony rioting and looting. And uh, the city mayor, Muriel Bowser, hardly some right-winger, she's an African-American, uh, pretty well-respected in the city, was clearly shaken by what had happened last night. The police chief said they're going to bring in the National Guard tonight. They've called a 7 p.m. curfew. And I just wonder whether perceptions are changing from a few nights ago when everybody was legitimately outraged over George Floyd to out of control looting and rioting going on right now. Well, I, nothing I said contradicts that. I mean, those things are both happening, you know. But, you know, if you look at, I think the distinctions that are being made are, are, are a little more discerning than the ones that were made in the 1960s, say, by, you know, the Chicago Tribune. Kevin Drum, you know, the very respected blogger mm -hmm. that, you know, at Mother Jones, said that what he's seeing in Los Angeles is that the cops seem to be letting the looting happen. And that they're they're folks fostering all their manpower at these kind of confrontations with the peaceful protesters, waiting for one bottle to get thrown so they can, you know, do what they have been doing, right? So I think that instead of this kind of unmitigated, you know, kind of anarchy that was kind of reported in the 1960s, I think the complexities are being discerned a little more clearly. Chicago, you know, shut down the downtown, right? I live in Chicago. Mayor Lightfoot had all the drawbridges, you know, raised over the Chicago River. So they're basically kind of like cordoning off the downtown and just kind of like as if they're kind of like protecting downtown from damage and letting whatever may happen, 
you know, in the various neighborhoods of the city, right? So, you know, this stuff is very complex and uh, we have to kind of like watch and discern and record as much as we can without adverting to kind of cliches about what happened in the past, right? We're in 2020 right now. I wrote this piece of Mother Jones, I think you saw it, about how uh, the political facts will probably be, if not the opposite, but very different than the ones Richard Nixon experienced in 1968. Well, uh, yeah, let's talk about that, Rick, because clearly, and this, this may be facile, but a lot of people are drawing the political parallels between 68 and today. In part because in 1968, Richard Nixon was running for president. Today, we've got Donald, Tr Donald Trump. These are both politicians who have been willing to stir the racial pot. Trump has been tweeting, in all caps, law and order from behind the barricades of the White House. Nixon, of course, ran ads during that campaign saying that he will restore order in America. So break down the parallels. There are some real parallels, aren't, aren't there? But the analogy, I think you're beginning to say, is, is deeply flawed as well. So talk about that. Right. I mean, the easiest way to kind of answer the, uh, you know, Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew rode in on a white horse and, you know, and promised law and order in 1968 and won, the easiest response to that is 1970. In which, you know, between 1968 and 1970, <laughs> there was there was lots of disorder. You know, uh, two thirds of the colleges in America went on strike. You know, uh, uh, crazy stuff. You know, there were tanks running down the street in Berkeley in 1969. All kinds of stuff like that. Kent State, right? Kent State, and Richard Nixon was very explicit. He toured and gave dozens of speeches for congressional candidates in which he basically said, we are going to use the word thugs and hoodlums. We're going to get them in line and made that basically a nationalized election around the theme of law and order. And he way, the Republicans way underperformed expectations. Now, of course, one difference between 1968 and 1970 was in 1970, he was the incumbent, right? When Bill Clinton was running against George Bush and Bill and George Bush, you know, kind of implied that the reason Los Angeles went up in flames was all those democratic, you know, kind of soft on crime policies. Bill Clinton said, that's kind of nuts because you guys have been in charge for 12 years. Right. So people may blame the disorder. Uh, and this is a pretty good you know, discernment on the part of the voters, if they do, on the guy who's in charge. Right. Basically, war and anti-war just look like kind of more war in a sense. Well, I yeah, I would say that I, I fully expect that the Trump campaign is already thinking about, if not already cutting, campaign ads with some of these images of, of violent uh, protests. But they're also leaders. talking about having, you know, meetings with black community leaders right. because right. they're terrified of being, you know, basically Americans don't want to be seen as racist and they don't want to be associated with people that are perceived as racist candidates. Yeah. Nixon and Reagan profoundly understood this. Uh, yeah. Richard Nixon, you know, always publicly upheld the goals of the civil rights movement. In fact, his attorney general publicly kind of let the cat out of the bag, one of those saying the, the quiet parts out loud when he said, watch what we do, not what we say. You know, Ronald Reagan running for president in 1980, he had a brilliant pollster named Richard Worthland. This is in my book, Reaganland, that's coming out in August. And Worthland came up with this idea, people think we're racist. People think that, 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 that Reagan is running on white backlash. Why don't we have lots of campaign events before black audiences? We're not going to win any black voters, but that will reassure voters 
that they're not voting for a bigot and they're not bigots themselves. Yeah. I don't think the candidate of they're not they're sending their rapists can credibly pull off that trick. I just wanted to point out because it's uh, it's relevant that today as we on Monday as we record this podcast, we just went up with a new story from the latest Yahoo News YouGov poll in which a slim majority of Americans believe that Donald Trump is a racist and should also stop tweeting. And I don't know if there is a historical precedent when a majority of Americans were willing to say that an American president was a racist. So just to your point, that's something that I think probably they will take notice of uh, at the Trump campaign and in the White House. Rather. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, just as a reminder of how relevant the events of 1968 are today, I pulled up the section of your book, Nixon Land, about the Kerner Commission, which was, of course, the commission appointed by then-President Johnson to look into the riots that were occurring throughout Black America. And it came back with this really powerful report. This is our basic conclusion. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one Black, one white, separate and unequal. And uh, segregation and poverty have created in the racial ghetto a destructive environment totally unknown to most white Americans. And there was a backlash against that, even just the commission's findings, so much so that at the time, Congress was considering a civil rights law, which became the 1968 civil rights law, but Quickly, right after the Kerner Commission, Strom Thurmond uh, introduces the H. Rapp Brown Amendment, making it a federal crime to travel from one state to another with the intent to start a riot. Guess what law Attorney General Barr was invoking or suggesting the feds may now use over the weekend to crack down on the Antifa and other outside agitators he believes have been uh, spurring the riots we've seen over the last few nights. It's that law, the Anti-Riot Act of 1968. That anti-riot amendment was added to the, the body of the 1968 Civil Rights Bill which was very similar to the the bill that was proposed in 1966. And what it did was it regulated or attempted to outlaw housing segregation. That bill was dead in the water before the riots. And the riots actually spurred congressional action to pass the bill that they wouldn't have passed in the absence of the riots. That's one of the complexities of these things. We all believe that violence isn't the answer to our problems. The fact of the matter is, you know, the, the Stonewall riot in 1969 is so respected and so domesticated that every year, every city has a big, you know, pride parade on the day of Stonewall in which all these kind of corporations, you know, hand out Frisbees and branded stuff. The Stonewall riot was a riot. They basically trapped the cops inside the bar and tried to burn it down. But everyone acknowledges that that was this huge spur to people recognizing that gays were oppressed and leading to civil rights advances. There's lots of ambiguity, ambiguities to riots. It's, it's no simple thing. You know, Mike, you mentioned Bill Barr and, and this law in 1968. It's worth remembering what Bill Barr was doing in 1968. He was on the Columbia. He was on the campus. <laughs> only of, you uh, can tell uh, us that on the Columbia right. on the campus of yeah. Columbia University when students took over uh, the president's office in Low Library, and he was 
very much on the other side of that divide. But I wanted to actually- That might have turned me into a right winger too. They, they took a pile of research that a professor had been working at for 10 years and burned it in a bonfire. Well, and there are some who who have pointed out that it's actually it was actually what was going on uh, on college campuses that may have had uh, as much of an effect as as some of the the riot. I wanted to ask you, Rick, about a term that was used during that period when Nixon was running when he was president. I, you may remember who actually used this for the first time, but this idea of a silent majority. And, you know, that that there was a, uh, a vast number of Americans out there who were not vocally part of the marching in the streets or the protesting or the culture war, but were very much quietly supporting the uh, Richard Nixon. Does that exist today in any shape or form, as far as you can tell? Well, the irony is that so that came from a fall 1969 speech in which basically Nixon had just suffered a uh, anti-war protest of two million people all over the country, right? And it was middle Americans. It was all sorts of Americans. And they were basically politically desperate. And he did this brilliant speech in which he basically tied the peaceful protesters to the non-peaceful protesters rhetorically. And the silent majority then you know, were people like my parents who were, you know, basically behind white picket fences. I tell a story in this article that I just wrote that when there were riots in Milwaukee, where I grew up in 1967, and none of my parents' friends could go to their businesses downtown to work, my parents had a pool party, right? Mm-hmm. That's the silent majority, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. not everyone had a pool, you know, uh, but the fact of the matter is the silent majority is the people now we would probably call white suburbanites. Mm-hmm. And white suburbanites are the people that handed the Republican Party and Trump a profound, massive defeat in 2018. And these are the people who most want to do not want to see themselves allied with someone that looks like a bigot, that looks like uh, someone who's, you know, stirring the pot. So the salience of the silent majority metaphor depends on who is the loud majority, right? Who are the people who have the megaphones? And if people begin to perceive that the people who are most responsible for visiting disorder upon their lives are, in fact, the forces of Donald Trump, then the silent majority metaphor might backfire on Donald Trump. And suburban, for Donald Trump, I think where he is most, maybe most vulnerable is suburban women. And I think they they are worried about their ability to, to hold on to that constituency. It's not against- a bunker. It's, it's a woman who uh, may uphold some liberal values, right? right. And, uh, you know, they might say, look at Joe Biden. He's a voice of calm. He's, you know, basically doing what RFK did in the streets of Indianapolis in 1968, saying, I empathize with how you feel. The best way to approach this is uh, respectfully and peacefully. I bet that that speech that RFK gave in Indianapolis in 1968, which was a city that didn't riot and for which RFK got credit for, is something that is happening in Joe Biden's mind right now to talk about a parallel. I think that's one of the best political speeches that I've ever seen on the jumping up on that flatbed truck. So we'll have to. And done done on the fly. But let me, uh, while we remember fondly uh, RFK in that speech, let's not forget 1968 was also the year of a year of George Wallace, who was running for president and got amazing traction in his presidential bid for a while. Talk about Wallace's role Remind us just how far along he got in his presidential bid and um, what the takeaway from that is. 
Right. So George Wallace, of course, was the governor of Alabama. He gave a very famous inaugural speech in 1963 saying, segregation now, segregation today, segregation forever. And in 1964, he ran for president as a Democrat and did very well in three primaries in the North. And kind of became very evident that this was this backlash against civil rights was not just something that was a Southern thing. He re- ran again in 1968. He, again, paid lip service to the goals of the civil rights movement. Even he didn't want to be seen as a racist in 1968. He did, however, say that if any protesters, you know, uh, laid down in front of my limousine like they had for uh, Robert McNamara when he went to Harvard, that he'd, he'd run him over. Right. So it wasn't any less you know, kind and gentle. Sounds kind of Trumpian, actually, but the- yes, uh, rather. And he, you know, was up to twenty percent in the polls until he chose a vice presidential running mate who was this kind of pro-nuclear war lunatic, Dr. Curtis LeMay. I mean, a General Curtis LeMay. So he only got, you know, whatever seven or eight percent. But the fact of the matter is, he was very important for Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon could kind of triangulate this kind of dog whistle message, right? that I'm going to give you law and order, but I'm not like this crazy racist over here, George Wallace. And that was quite an explicit goal of Nixon's campaigning in the South, which was done, by the way, not by Nixon, but by Democrats for Nixon run by Strom Thurmond. And they use country songs. And basically, they kind of thread the needle between, you know, watch what we say, not what we do, and what George Wallace was up to. And Nixon was able to pull out that victory over Hubert Humphrey, who was a champion of civil rights all through his career. But that race was actually, I think, closer than a lot of people remember, right? I mean, I, I, uh, I went back and I looked. I did not realize. I mean, Humphrey could have pulled that out. Yeah, and that, that all gets involved with the Vietnam War. Humphrey was basically castrated by uh, Lyndon Johnson, who told him he was screwed if he you know, said anything critical about his Vietnam War policy. And then very much kind of like I think a week before the election, couple of weeks before the election, he gave a speech in Salt Lake City, in which he said he'd consider a bombing halt and, you know, restarting the negotiations for peace. Actually, the peace, the negotiations were going on. That's another thing. Nixon sabotaged them. Yeah, I think that was the uh, the Nixon sabotage of the peace oh, talks. Oh, with, with have, uh, Madame, finally... Madame Chenault, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hubert Humphrey uh, basically drew to just about a tie because he was willing to break with Lyndon Johnson finally and belatedly. But no, that was definitely something in which the election was only basically decided and conceded the next morning. So coming back to the point of your uh, Mother Jones piece, which is that uh, the impact of riots and disturbances like we're having now are hard to predict and could cut in different ways. But that said, as this has unfolded, and if more attention is on what we saw last night in Washington, D.C. and some other cities where it it really does become vandalism, looting that seems disconnected from the original purpose for the protests over George Floyd. Is that a net plus for Donald Trump or not? Will he be able to use this to gin up his base, get people angry again, and give them a reason to vote for him? I'm sure that he'll be able to gin up the 40% of the American voting public that's his base. How you get that to enough electoral votes to get 50% plus one is much less clear, especially since, as I keep on saying, that people blame the disorder on Donald Trump, certainly not on quiet, calm Joe Biden. But as this continues, uh, can we be confident that will be the case? Well, I don't know. 
I can't be confident of anything, you know, that happens, you know, after, uh, you know, June 1st, 2020, but after we're done doing this interview, right? I mean, what's yeah. the process that goes through a voter's mind when they see people looting that Joe Biden is making them loot or their anger at Donald Trump is making them loot? And maybe if Donald Trump goes away, we'll have less looting. That seems to be a much easier cogitation for the voting public to make. I think, Isakoff, you may underestimate the exhaustion factor in this country and with Donald Trump. Oh, well, uh, no, I, I don't <laughs> underestimate it at all. Just like and- Warren G. Harding said in 1920, <laughs> which has always been Joe Biden's electoral appeal, even during the Democratic primaries. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring us back to January 19th, 2009. That yeah. sounds pretty darn good when buildings are on fire. You know, what's also uh, fascinating is uh, the vice presidential selection process and how things have changed. I mean, Nixon picks Spiro Agnew, a a guy who was on really nobody's radar screen at the time, kind of a non-entity. But Biden has a big pick to make. And, you know, we've got the clear indications already that the events of now, uh, what's happening now, is going to influence that pick. I think we talked the other day about uh, Amy Klobuchar's uh, star has faded quite a bit as a result of all this. It would make it very hard to pick the former Hennepin County uh, District Attorney as Biden's uh, running mate at this point, and most likely that he will have to pick an African-American. And, you know, there are not a lot of obvious candidates out there. There are a, a few, Kamala Harris, Val, uh, uh, the um, the police chief Val, in Orlando. Val, Val Deming. I, I, Val I would Deming. say that her, that, yeah. that her stock has risen considerably, yeah. given the fact that she ran a African-American woman who ran a police department for, a, for many years. Exactly. I mean, uh, do vice presidential picks actually matter in these um, in these races? And um, if so, how would you see the Biden selection process? Well, I think isn't the cliche that a vice president pick can't necessarily help you, but it can hurt you. So I think they're going to look for uh, maybe a a safer bet. Hard to say. Hopefully he'll choose someone who can um, govern the country in the event uh, (laughs) Joe Biden can't be president anymore. I mean, is it that is it that crazy that uh, uh, Joe Biden would take the statesmanlike route and and make that a consideration? I hope so. I think that's what he wants to do. And he wants to pick someone who's also simpatico, as he's put it, you know, and, uh, you know, he may be able to find someone who can do all those things for him. So. We're not going to know for another couple of months, apparently. Hey, hey um, Rick, last question. You mentioned you've got this new book, Reaganland, coming up. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about it to whet our appetite? That's awful kind of you. It covers the years from 1976 to 1981 in Reagan's inauguration. And uh, basically just kind of tells the story of how he was able to marshal this coalition that um, seemed to rock the New Deal tradition on its heels for another generation. Um, and Donald and- Trump makes a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as as he always does. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, a lot of uh, a lot that went on during that period that uh, I'll be eager uh, to read your take on. Rick, thanks for joining us. And uh, we will have you back when the book's yes, out. Yes, w- when the book uh, is out, come on back. Definitely. Uh-huh. 
Thanks to Yahoo News White House correspondent Hunter Walker and historian Rick Perlstein for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.